Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. It's true. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 224. From the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball here with Kerry Haskell. Downtown brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, a couple of talented actors join us on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, we'll talk with our friend Mike Farrell as we approach the 50th anniversary of the premiere of MASH. And we'll talk about some of Mike's experiences uh, on the show before getting the gig on the show and and the impact all these years later. Up first, a very talented actress who you've seen in television shows going back to Cinderella in 1965, Mission Impossible, Will and Grace, and many more. An Academy Award nominee for her work in the film Victor Victoria and a number of other terrific roles in movies like Clue, Secretary, and many more. Talking, of course, about the talented Leslie Ann Warren, who joins us on Downtown. Well, thank you so much for making some time for us today. You're very welcome. You're welcome. You have uh, you have such a remarkable body of work. There's uh, so much to talk about, but but I thought this was pretty interesting when I posted on uh, on social media that you were going to be on the show. I had uh, three different female friends who were actors who all reached out and said, oh, my gosh, please let her know how much of an inspiration she's been to me. Oh, that's so great to hear. That's great to hear. Well, let's go back uh, well, almost to the beginning here. You started so young. Were you 17 when you joined the Actors Studio? I was. I was 17. I was in my first Broadway show. I had just turned 17 over the summer, and we were in rehearsal for 110 in the Shade. And um, at the same time, I believe I auditioned for the actor's studio and got in. And I had to tell them I was 18 because they didn't, at that time, they didn't let people under 18 get in. So, yeah, I made that one up. But Now, that was, was, yes. that the, um, was that the Harvey Schmidt, Tom Jones show, their follow-up to the Fantastics? Yes, it was. Yes. So you yes, were doing I, that, and was it was it doing uh, 110 in the Shade when Charles Dubin saw you? Yes, he saw me in the Broadway show, and um, I was I had come to audition for Cinderella, uh, along with probably I don't even know how many hundreds of other <laughs> young women, um, and I was so intimidated by auditioning for Richard Rogers that I really didn't do a good audition, and. He was kind of like, well, thanks, but no thanks, essentially. And but Charles, Charlie Dubin, who had seen me on Broadway, said, no, you've got to give, bring her in again. She's so young. She was just nervous. And so they did bring me in again. And um, this time they had, they had the, the prior audition was in a, I, I guess, rehearsal hall. But this time they invited me to come to uh, Mr. Rogers' apartment with Charles Dubin and um, uh, Eugene Loring, the choreographer, and Johnny Green, the musical supervisor, and they all we all were in the living room. And then uh, Richard Rogers asked him to leave, and he sat down at the piano bench and had me sat, sit down next to him and played my funny Valentine for me and asked me to sing it, each sort of phrase. 
after he sang it. And that was my audition, and it went really well, obviously, and I got the job. Was that intimidating, or did he help put you at ease? You know, just being there with him alone and having him be so kind and and teaching me how he liked his music to be sung, it did put me somewhat at ease, yeah. It was much more uh, comfortable than being in a rehearsal room with everybody at the other end of the <laughs> rehearsal room. And, you know, it's, it's so isolating and you feel so, it, it is totally intimidating. So, yes, it was much, much easier for me. Well, of course, Cinderella was such a huge hit. I remember as a as a young guy watching that and, and probably falling head over heels in love like every other guy <laughs> my age. But uh, what a what a powerhouse cast. You were working with some certified yes. legends. Definitely working with legends. I was Ginger Rogers was the queen mother and I had been a dancer my whole life. And so to be in a movie actually or you know, a television project with her was astounding. And then the same thing with Joe Van Fleet, who played the um, the Wicked Stepmother. I, I I was a member of the Actors Studio at that time. I had been studying with Lee Strasberg for years uh, in his private classes. And so she was an icon of the studio. She was, you know, considered one of the greats. And so, again, that was just... Uh, an incredible experience to be on a uh, soundstage with him, of course, Celeste Holm and, mm-hmm. you know, Walter Pigeon. It was just, it was an amazing, amazing entrance. Uh, that would lead to the opportunity to work with Walt Disney and uh, one of our best friends on the show because he lives uh, next door in New Hampshire. John Davidson is a wonderful oh, friend of our show. Yeah. And uh, you worked with John, our friend Joyce Bullifant, my gosh, Fred McMurray, Geraldine Page, yeah. Mrs. Miniver yes. for crying out loud, you're working with Greer Garson. I know. It was it, to have Greer Garson play my mother in my first movie. It was just, it was everything I think I ever dreamed of in terms of movies. And I was, you know, I would, my mom and I would go to two movies every, you know, on a Saturday for years and years and years when I was little. And I was so, so enchanted and entranced by movies and the incredible artists of that day. And so to be in my first movie with them was an You know, there are no words for how glorious that was. And then you got a chance to work out with John and the Sherman brothers again. Yes, yes. We did the second movie. I was under contract for Disney, but Mr. Disney passed away after the first film that we did together, The Happiest Millionaire. And And then I came back to fulfill my contract with John Davidson on the second film, which was, you know, also wonderful. It was Walter Brennan and Buddy Epson, Janet. Blair, yeah, it's incredible. We're talking with Leslie Ann Warren here on Downtown. How did you end up getting the role of Dana Lambert on Mission Impossible? You know, they came to me. They came to my manager, I believe, and they wanted to take the show in a very different direction. They wanted a younger viewership, I believe. And, um, you know, so they, they sought me out. And our biggest sort of creative argument was that I wanted to have my freckles show and they didn't, they were like, no, we don't want that. We want, you know, some glamour or whatever. And so, but it was great because they gave me a real variety of acting challenges as Dana Lambert. I didn't want to stay with the show ultimately because it wasn't 
what I had envisioned for myself long term. But I had, you know, an incredible experience working with Leonard Nimoy, who went on to direct me in his first directing uh, job on Night Gallery, which was amazing. And I understand you uh, forged a pretty good friendship with Peter Graves as well. Oh, we had, we, he made me laugh my head off. I mean, he was so funny and, and you wouldn't know it from his demeanor in the show because he was so uber serious, but um, he was hysterically funny. And, and I had worked with his brother. I had worked with James Arnaz and Gunsmoke. So, you know, it was, um, we had a great time. Uh, you did a, a tremendous amount of TV work and quality work in the 1970s, including uh, earning a Golden Globe for uh, Harold Robbins' 79 Park Avenue. Was that a lot of fun? Oh, it was an amazing experience because it was three months. Um, there were 96 costume changes because I went <laughs> through all these decades. And it was a very, you know, I don't know if that that kind of uh, romantic movie would, would, would occur today, but it was full of romance and uh, pain and, you know, just, uh, it was a great, you know, there was a rape in the beginning and, you know, there were, it was very, very, very emotional and dramatic, which I loved. And then uh, I think one of your greatest film roles, uh, working with Blake Edwards and a stellar cast, Julie Andrews, uh, the great James Garner and uh, Robert Preston, everybody involved in Victor Victoria. Yeah, that was a sensational experience. It was one of the highlights of my acting career, for sure. I mean, I adored Blake. I, I adored Julie. And, the, you know, he really let me go full throttle with my own imagination in terms of Norma Cassidy. And, I, and it was, you know, it was scary, really scary, but it was also an incredible opportunity for me. And uh, Julie was on with us a few years ago, and, and she talked about how much she loved not only in Victor Victoria, but in uh, the Americanization of Emily. Uh, she just loved working with James Garner. And everybody we've talked with that worked with him says the same thing. He's, he was just top shelf. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. And it was fun to be his sort of adversary in this movie, you know, because he was, we were, even though we were together, we weren't really together. And, um, Norman was always, you know, calculating the next move. So it was fun. It was, you know, really, a, you know, great fun. In the mid-1980s, uh, you made a movie that did well at the time, but who would have imagined all these years later, Clue would become such a fan favorite and a cult classic. But I have to think you just enjoyed the opportunity to work with so many comedy geniuses. Yes, it was, in my opinion, it was, it was, some of the most uh, uh, iconic comic legends and in one movie. And uh, again, it was, it was, it was extraordinary to watch the other actors work. You know, I would be, we would all, we actually drove Jonathan and really crazy, the director, because we would be laughing uproariously at each other's shenanigans. And it was just, it was, it was, it, what, it was only uh, um, moderately successful when it came out, but it was it is huge now. I can't tell you mm -hmm. the amount of mail I get. It's amazing, or you know, Instagram posts, and it never wavers. It's so wonderful. I understand okay. too that uh, you and Martin Mull fed off each other very well and and forged a wonderful relationship as a result. 
We did. We 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 were put together as Colonel Mustard and Scarlet, and then we, and he just made me laugh all the time. And subsequently, we've been in I think four other projects, four or five other projects together as husband and wife. And you know, we call each. I call him my telly hubby. You know, we're just we're so uh, we love working together. We enjoy each other's talent and you know, comic sort of sensibility. And we just have the greatest time together. So it's a blessing. And it was uh, great. I, I've always loved watching Psych, and it was great to see so many of you back together on that episode. Yeah, that was, I had just come out of a cast of, I broke my kneecap in a crazy accident. I fell over a cord, but, um, so I couldn't do a lot of the running. Couldn't do a lot of the crazy kind of crew running from room to room. So they, they had to get somebody in the dress that I was wearing, and she would do the running, and then I would appear. But we had a great time. I wouldn't have made it through customs because we were there for two two and a half hours if it wasn't for Martin. <laughs> he was so hysterical. Yeah. Is, is comedy harder to do than drama, and how how important is it to approach it uh, very seriously and not wink at the audience? I I think they're equally as challenging. You know. Um, and I've always said, I always approach the comedy that I'm doing the same way that I approach the dramatic roles that I'm doing. I approach it very seriously. I figure out who the character is, what the history is, what the relationships are. And I, I genuinely feel that if you either have the comic sensibility or you don't. I don't think it's something that can be taught in class, you know, so luckily for me, <laughs> I seem to have it. What was your experience like working with Mel Brooks on Life Stinks? Oh, it was fantastic. I adored him. Uh, he was, you know, he was so uh, protective, but also pushed me to do things I'd never done before, which was exciting and scary. And um, and I think the favorite, you know, my favorite moment in that movie was our Ginger Rogers for a stair dance. <laughs> he decided midway through the movie that he wanted to do a dance number. And I, of course, was overjoyed. And we had just, it was, first of all, it's hysterical. But it was just a joy, you know. He was, he's one of my favorite leading men. Well, you studied ballet when you were a young woman, right? Yeah, I studied ballet from the time I was six to about 14. Wow. A uh, couple of movies that uh, I loved your work in. Uh, one was a terrific movie. I don't think got enough attention with Terrence Stamp, The Lyman. Oh, yeah. That was that was amazing. An amazing experience as well. I, you know, I was so excited to work with Steven Soderbergh. I was thrilled. And um, I was nervous. I was very nervous for most of it because I, I, I held him in such high regard and... Terrence is, uh, you know, such a brilliant actor with such an enormous, legendary career. Um, but it was, it was, it was challenging in different ways because what we would do is he would have us shoot the same scene in three different locations, and then he edited it together in this way to convey a kind of memory of the Terrence Stamp character. So it was very different than than other movies that I've shot. Also love the work you did with Maggie Gyllenhaal, James Spader, and Secretary. Yeah, that was that was wild. That was <laughs> that was a, a wild experience. 
I had read the book. I had read the short story, and I very much wanted to be a part of it. Um, but it was, it was tremendously challenging. You've worked with so many terrific directors through the years. Uh, from your perspective as an actor, what do you look for? What makes a good director? You know, all of the directors that I have worked with that I admire so tremendously, they're all different. They're all different. And in my opinion, there is no one or two um, attributes that make a great director. You know, really, they're so different. But you have to go in feeling like you actually respect and trust the person at the helm. And then you can go on whatever journey they want to go on. You worked with one of the greatest directors, but in a different role, uh, acting uh, alongside Sidney Pollock and Will and Grace. Uh, yeah. That must have been a real treat. It was a real treat. He had produced a movie I had done called Songwriter with mm -hmm. uh, Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. And, and so when they called me and asked me to do this, I didn't know that I would be working with Sydney, but I found, obviously found out at the table read that there he was. And it was just, you know, what was great about it was he was as serious as, as an actor as he was as a director. He challenged some you know, content, he took lines, and he was very devoted and very um, committed as an actor. And we come from the same sort of background um, in terms of our work, and so it was just heaven to work with him. You worked with another great ensemble on Desperate Housewives, and I, there's, a, there's a common theme that you tend to be a part of these great ensembles that tells me you're one of those actors that, that brings out the best in the people around you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, you know, honestly, I just try to do the very best with the work that I'm doing, whatever that is, in whatever capacity it is. You know, I went and did a cameo a year ago in, in a tiny independent movie because I really like the material and um, I like the director. It's a woman director. It's her first directing, but I really liked her and thought she was so intelligent. And, um, you know, it was. It, I put as much into that as I do into Victor Victoria or Clue or you know any of the more uh, you know um, obvious sort of star vehicles. Uh, so many of us have been touched by a dementia in our family. A terrific film, a television film that you did a few years back uh, with Brett Cullen. It snows all the time. Yes, it just came out on Amazon Prime. It. it it took a long time finding a distributor, which is sometimes the journey of independent films. But it's a very lovely moving film about on early onset dementia. And Brett does an amazing job, and um, I was very proud of my participation in it. You've had such a remarkable career, Leslie, and, and you, you've worked so hard. You make good choices, obviously, too. Uh, where does the work ethic come from? Is that something you learned from family? <laughs> You know, I think it comes from ballet, to be truthful. I think it, it, you're so, ballet is such a structured, disciplined art form. And as a young girl, I was inundated, you know, exposed to, uh, my first teacher was from the Royal Ballet in, in England, and she was strict as hell. <laughs> and, you know, my subsequent teachers, Dugodovsky, a Russian teacher, who was brilliant. Um, and you learn this really strict discipline and commitment uh, in 
that art form, just like in the Olympics, I'm sure, you know. And so that carried me into my into my choices as an actress. What's the role that people bring up most often if you encounter them uh, in airports, out in public? Excuse me. Um, I would say Clue, Clue or Cinderella. <laughs> They're totally diverse, but I mean, Clue is still a giant fan favorite. And they love Miss Scarlet. And it's the same thing with Cinderella. You know, it's it's all these years later, it, it has uh, just impacted so many people and moved them so much. And that, you know, they speak of it with such great love and admiration. It's beautiful. Well, Leslie, I've enjoyed your work uh, from, from the time of Cinderella right up into uh, everything you're doing these days. It's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much for being nice with us. Talk. Nice to talk to you, too. Thank you so much. Leslie Ann Warren here on Downtown, the podcast. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And then we talk MASH with B.J. Honeycutt, Mike Farrell, next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Back on Downtown, a theme song from the other series that uh, Mike Farrell, well, one of many that Mike Farrell starred in, Providence, a terrific show, but Mike, of course, best known for his work as B.J. Honeycutt on the final eight seasons of MASH, which premiered 50 years ago this September. We talked with Mike about the show, his experiences, and the legacy of MASH. How are you doing, Rich? I'm doing fine, Mike. How are you? All right, thanks. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, we got the 50th anniversary coming up, so wanted to uh, wanted to talk with you about MASH, which we've we've covered before, but uh, maybe get in uh, to some other areas. And, and let's start with the recent passing of Bert Metcalf. What, what did he mean to the show? Oh, Bert was, you know, you have you have beams in a ceiling, you have mainstays in in there in the world. Um, Bert was. Uh, solid. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Um, Bert was the casting director before he was an actor, and then he was the casting director. He knew all sides of the business, but he was the casting director at Universal um, when I was under contract there in the early seventies, and uh, we knew each other slightly. And I remember one day running into him on the on the lot, and. Uh, he said, oh, I just wanted to say goodbye. And I said, goodbye? Where are you going? He said, I'm going over to the 20th. I'm going to do a show over there. I said, oh, good for you. That's great. And off he went. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we did. We had no contact subsequently until, well, I guess it would have been two or three years later when I was asked to come over and meet about the possibility of joining the cast of MASH. And, uh, and um, I, I think of that a lot. Uh, I was with Bert 
when he got sick and um, spent some time with him at the hospital in his last days. And I remember saying, um, typically Bert, typically generous of this guy who was at that time was afraid he was, I shouldn't say afraid, felt that he was dying. And I said, you know, um, I want to say again, thank you for opening me to providing for me the one of the great experiences of my life and, and certainly the highest experience of, of my career. And uh, I said, it's, 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 I owe it to you. And he said, and he wasn't able to talk much, but he looked me in the eye, shook his head negatively and pointed at me and said, now it was you. Oh. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I will never forget that. And I'll never forget him. I mean, we were friends uh, on the set, but we were friends afterward. All of us have remained close. And um, Bert was the kind of the mainstay. He was the he was the the beam holding up the rafters, I guess. Mike, who were some of the unsung heroes of the series that uh, that maybe the viewer didn't see or just were names in the credits, but uh, were instrumental to the show's success? Well, Larry Gelbart, of course, was known to the industry and hopefully to the world at large because he was the comic genius who, to call him comic genius is, is to give him credit for his comedic skills, but he was far more than that. He was he was a genius, and he was, uh, he was the man who, along with... Uh, Gene uh, Reynolds and and, and and Bert was a contributor there as well, uh, but they were they were the ones that formed the idea. And Alan Aldo, when they when they came to him with the show, um, I've, I've I've subsequently uh, been told that they had a conversation, and Alan said, "This is not I, I won't do it if it's you know hijinks at war. We need to, this has to be a show about people and the people that did what they." Uh, what they heroically did in the face of such horror and, uh, and tried somehow to maintain their, uh, their sanity. Um, so then you had um, some, some writers I didn't know very well because I know of them, but the, uh, the first three years of the show, Fitzell um, and, Fitzell and Eric Greenberg, I think, were two writers who were, uh, you know, they really went to a lot for the scripts. Larry wrote a tremendous number of the scripts, but and always polished them, I think. And then uh, when I came aboard, we had uh, Thad Mumford and Dan Wilcox. We had uh, David Isaacs and Ken, um, whose last name, forgive me, I'm blanking on. Ken Levine. Uh, Levine, thank you. Subsequently, Alan Katz and Don Rio, and I mean these wonderful, wonderfully talented people who um, got it. And you know the comic geniuses of the show. 
uh, John Rappaport. I mean, there were so many, so many people. Karen, um, I'm going to blank on her last name right now. Karen was first or second female writer we had. And um, I've I've come to this place in my life where names are my... Are, are the bane of my memory, um, but uh, uh, Karen Hall. Karen Hall, thank you very much. God, you know more. See, you know more about the show than I do. <laughs> um, anyway, it was there on the page. You know, we could add to it to give it the riffs that that our um, abilities allowed us to provide. But it was there on the page, and they did their homework. These folks, uh, they. Actually, Bert and Gene and uh, uh, Larry did a trip to uh, to Korea to look at mm. the at the the eight hundred five five mash, which was the I guess the one that Dr. Hornberger uh, actually served in, and um, they made up twelve seven seven, but he made it up I guess originally, um, and um, and 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 the, and the you know we had Doug Stubbs was the um, property master on the set. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the people who wardrobed us, the particularly, <laughs> particularly the people who wardrobed Jamie. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, everybody made a contribution and they all understood what we were doing and they all felt a part of what we were doing. We had a, a woman, uh, Connie Isay, was a surgical nurse who was a regular with us. She was there every day and stood in as a as a uh, an extra or a background player. But Connie made sure that we did the uh, the um, surgical techniques properly. We handled things, the procedures appropriately. And we had Walt Dischel, a doctor was our technical medical technical advisor, but Connie was that the same. And um, Walt would look at the scripts and make sure the scripts were right. And periodically, I guess he'd talk if we asked him about a particular procedure and one or another. But Connie was there every day, and it was uh, she was just uh, an extraordinarily um, thoughtful, decent woman. So you know, so many of these people. Uh, Scotty, the guy that took our phone messages and, <laughs> and, 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 and joined in some of the, some of the, <laughs> some of the hijinks. I remember one time, uh, Alan came to me with a, uh, a letter from a guy. It was a con, you know, it was a guy that said he had this idea about building this wall in San Francisco out of bricks and bricks would be painted with the names of every person who contributed $10,000 to this, <laughs> to this uh, fund that he was building for, to deal with the homeless and the destitute and blah, 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 bullshit, 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 excuse me for using that <laughs> term. Um, and Alan was really frosted. I mean, he was, he, we all got kooky mail as well as the wonderful, most of the wonderful mail we got. But this particular one really ticked him off. And he, he came over and showed it to me. He said, can you believe this jerk, to, you know, pulling this? And I thought to myself, God, man, he, this guy really got under his skin for whatever reason. So I went over to Scotty 
or the guy who answered the phone and took messages. And uh, I said, tomorrow, uh, tell uh, <laughs> tell Alan that that let's call this guy Tom Jones. Tell Alan that the man by the name of Tom Jones called for him and, <laughs> and wants him to call back. And Scotty said, what, what, what do you mean? I just said, just tell him that. And he said, okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, Alan got a call from Tom Jones. And he said, what? <laughs> to Scotty. I said, I, all I can tell you is he called. And so Scotty very quickly got into the got into the gag. So the next, so that day, I said, thank you for doing that. Now, the next day, uh, tell him he called twice. <laughs> but we got that to the third day. I I had Western Union send a telegram in his name, to Alan. and Alan was getting more and more cooked by this the audacity of this guy. And then to cap it off, at the I don't know the end of the week, maybe it was. I hired a friend who was an actor who Alan didn't know to play this guy. And I called the uh, uh, the publicist on the show at the lot, and I said, this man's going to come on the set, on the lot, and I want you to bring him down and introduce him to Alan. He has a charity that he needs that Alan wants to hear about. And, and my friend uh, went and came in, and Chuck said, Chuck Panama, the publicist said, okay, sure, no problem. And my friend came on the lot, and Chuck brought him on the set. Alan, I want you to meet Tom Jones. He's this gentleman. He said, Alan, what you should see. I mean, his face was just ashen looking. <laughs> and he uh, and, and Chuck then departed. And my friend just gave Alan this pitch about the wonderful thing that would happen if he could just give the money and have his name on the brick in the wall. Alan uh, uh, did not strike him, <laughs> but he but he ushered him off the set. And came over to me and said, can you believe that? And then I had one of those people you, you have come in and sing a song that has, uh, that has uh, some balloons and uh, uh, sings a song that we, that we con- concocted about you've been had, my friend. And, <laughs> and he, oh God, Alan's mouth was wide open for hours after that. That was hysterical. So... so so that leads me to believe then that the episode of the Joker is Wild was was certainly based on the real life practical jokes that were such an important part of that set. Absolutely, absolutely. Bert Metcalf came up to me and he said, "Jesus," he said, "these things you pull in the guys." He said, "I used to pour salt in the sugar shaker for the coffee when they were having coffee in the mess. Just stuff, you know, just to, to kind of have fun." And Bert said, well, we, we've got a story here. So they wrote a, they wrote, <laughs> they wrote a story about the, the people doing jokes on the, on the, on everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and the Joker turned out to be BJ. We're talking with Mike Farrell here on downtown. Now we've, we've talked about it with you before. You've been offered some other sitcom opportunities, but uh, you weren't really interested in just doing another sitcom. You wanted to do something of quality. Well, I, I'd been offered a number of shows after that, and and it was all some version of <clears throat> either BJ goes home, or you know something kind of hope they wanted to be similar to Mash. But you no, know, I didn't. 
I frankly felt we had done the best television series, the best kind of work that was possible to be done. And I didn't know that I'd ever find something. And uh, and I, I made some movies. I produced some movies. Um, found a settled a partnership with my my then partner Mar- Marvin Minoff, and we did a number of movies for television and a couple features, and had a good time. And um, stayed you know active. I directed a film, and we you know we stayed in the business. But I, I just could, couldn't imagine that there'd be a, a, an acting experience on a regular basis for me that would ever measure up. And you knew and then, this was going to be something special when you when you joined the show. And was it was it the meeting you had uh, with Alan when you two went out to to lunch and he sort of explained his view of the show? Well, it was more than that. But um, I, I had never met Alan before. I was I was invited to meet Larry and Gene and Bert and we just talked. They had they were they were Wayne had determined he was going to leave or was threatening to leave and they weren't sure if the studio was going to be able to meet his um contract uh, requirements. So they decided they would reach out to some people and see if they you know they could come up with somebody to replace him if that was the case. If that if that became necessary, so when it when it became very pretty clear that they were going to have to replace him, they asked me and I don't know how many others uh, to come in and meet. And at that time, um, I was uh, I was under contract at Universal. I had done a television series with Tony Quinn, and um, that was one of one of the wonderful experiences I'd had. And prior to that, I'd done one with Rod Crawford, who was another, you know, it was another powerful experience in, in many ways. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Universal kept looking for something for me, and they wanted me to do this and wanted me to do that. And we kept disagreeing. And, t- and then um, uh, this meeting came over, came along for MASH, and I said up to my agent, I said, can I do this? I'm under contract. And he said, having a meeting is not going to hurt. So I didn't, I, I didn't frankly know the show. I had heard of it. I didn't know Bert was associated with it. Um, I went, uh, I may have told you this story. I, 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 I was going to go out to dinner with a friend and I went to pick him up and he said, wait, well, I can't go yet. I've got to watch MASH. And I said, come on, man. He said, no, no, I got to finish watching MASH. And uh, so I went in and we sat and I, I remember Seeing a scene with Gary uh, Radar, Gary Berghoff, in which he was doing that character and he was, you know, being zeroed in from all sides by people. Everybody wanted him and the the bombs were going off and the gunfire was happening and the wounded were coming in and the choppers and this and that. And he was this kid, this naive kid, and he was trying to keep it all together. And I remember being knocked out. I thought, by God, that is really amazing, that show and, and this cast, the, the way they're doing this. So I, it sort of emblazoned itself on my memory. And uh, But it was a show that was already going on, and they had their cast, so there was no nothing that could be done about it from my point of view. And then uh, uh, when I was still in the contract, a universal uh, producer called me, and he said, I've got a television series I'd like uh, I'd like you to to do if you, and I said, well, can I see the script? And he said, sure. And he sent it to me. 
And it was, as you suggest, it was a, a kind of a joke show. It was, a, you know, so, so many jokes per page sitcom that had no heart at all. And I, I said, gee, you know, it's very nice of you to think of me, but thank you, but no thank you. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, no thank you. And he said, you, you're turning down the lead in a television series? And I said, yeah. And he said, why? And I said, I didn't want to tell him I thought his show was stupid. So I said, well, it, it, it's not MASH. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me like he didn't know what I was talking about. And, you know, but I'll never forget that because it was some months later that the call came to go over and have this meeting. And I thought, God, God, <laughs> could it could it be possible? Um, and uh, I met the guys and I'd been around. I'd been under contract. I'd done these series and stuff, but I was as nervous as a cat. I thought, well, I, I, I didn't I didn't want to trip over my feet or slobber, but I thought this was, you know, manna from heaven, and uh, and they uh, they were just as sweet. And I, the one thing I said was, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, I understand whether or not this is going to work out is a big big uh, question, but I wouldn't be interested in coming in and playing Trapper John. And stepping into Wayne's boots and just saying, "You new new actor playing Tra- Trapper John," and they said, "Oh no no no, absolutely not. We understand that would be that would be an insult to the audience." Um, but this is the military; people die, people you know are transferred out, so we can we can have somebody transfer in. I said, "Well, that, as long as we understand each other, that." That's the only circumstance that I would find unacceptable. But other than that, you know, I would crawl across the city to do this show. Uh, and uh, then I got a call back and they said, would you come in and do a test with Alan, a screen test? And they just said, this is not about whether you can act. We know that. It's about how the two of you uh, interact, what kind of chemistry, if any, happens between the two of you. And I did that. And uh, it was uh, three days later, I guess, um, I got a call and said, you got it. And I got a call the same day from Alan, as you suggested, saying, would you have dinner with me? And I said, you bet. <laughs> you bet. And we sat and talked and talked and talked about his view of the show, about what he hoped for the show, about uh, just, you know, Getting us in sync, and it was it was it was uh, it was like magical time. Uh, just uh, talking to this guy about what he viewed as the possibilities that this show presented in terms of reaching an audience about something that was significant in, in life and meaningful, and uh, it, it was uh, it, so. It calmed my fears because I felt very worried. That because I knew they had all gotten along, but you know they were storied as being um, friends, and I thought there's the possibility that this jerk coming in to taking the place of one of their brethren is going to be um, not welcome. So Alan's taking the time to have dinner with me calmed much of that, but it was the next morning when I went to work. Um, 
uh, walked on the set on stage nine, and uh, first person that came up to me was Gary Berghoff. Stuck out his hand, said, "Welcome, happy to have you with us." Then came Loretta and Jamie and Bill and uh, and and Larry, and it was just it was just uh, fabulous, just fabulous. Well, Loretta was on with us a couple of days ago, and she said that's that's one of the things that helped make the show such an enduring success is there wasn't an attempt to replace those those beloved characters who had left the show, but it, it was an opportunity for the writers and the cast to explore new characters and different types of relationships. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, it, it, well, for me, it was just good, good godsend luck. But I remember uh, when, uh, when Larry Linville decided to leave, and he, he had, you know, he had, he had done a wonderful job, but it, it was an impossible character ultimately mm-hmm. to play. And, and Alan and I had become uncomfortable by that time with the idea of making fun of, of somebody who may be crazy. Um, so we, we, we were all Larry and Alan and I, and the rest of everybody trying to figure out how to, how to work this. And Al, and Larry finally said, you know what? I think I need to move on. I've, I've done everything I can do with this character. And then Berg came over to us one day and he said, I've got a guy, after Larry had left, I've got a guy that's going to pin your ears back. <laughs> he's uh, he's going to be every bit as surge, uh, good a surgeon as you two. And he's going to be your, your intellectual match and a challenge because he's going to be just the exact opposite <laughs> of the two of you. And it was David Ogden Styers, and it was—I got to say—it was love at first sight. We, David, was just brilliant, and it was an, exa- an example of what you just said. Loretta had talked about that they had the in, the intelligence. The Gene, and by that time, Larry was gone, but Gene and, and Bert said, "Oh yeah, no, we've got to do this the right way." And man, did they ever! There are so many great episodes through the years, but uh, I wanted to bring up a couple. One of my all-time favorites, and I I tear up just thinking about it, is uh, the episode entitled Death Takes a Holiday, where uh, BJ is trying to make sure a a patient doesn't die on Christmas Day. What a a powerful episode. It was was extraordinary. And, you know, they gave me that that challenge. I directed it. And, uh, and, uh, I guess I wrote part of the script, and um, it was. Um, it, it, I think it's one of the one of the finest shows we did in terms of making the point that these people are connected. These people overseas um, risking their lives are, are are connected to all of us, and it's not just their families; it's all of us. And when this idea came up that this guy might die on Christmas Day and BJ and the rest of the people couldn't couldn't stand the idea that his family would never would always then be uh, be have that hovering over their Christmas holiday that, that that's the day their loved one father husband son died in the war we thought God this is this really has to be done to perfection. And um, the gang really pulled it off, I think. 
also love uh, the work you do, especially in a period of adjustment, because we, we really got to see the, the anger and the frustration that BJ was dealing with. Oh, man. <laughs> that was a funny one. I, I, um, yeah, there were two for me. Uh, there was that one, and there was uh, when Radar Goes Home, and, mm. and, and uh, Peg lets me know that when they went down to meet him to get off the ship, yeah. <laughs> Aaron, our, my, my baby daughter, ran up to him, called him Daddy. Yeah. So that one was a heartbreaker. And then period of adjustment about the um, falling in love or like or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they, they're just, it's uh, the challenges that they presented us uh, were just fabulous you couldn't you couldn't wait to open this the new script and see what 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 they've what they've wrought for us and, and at a time when when so much television was was pretty rote pretty by the book willing to take chances and do things differently and I, and I think the one of the best examples of that uh, is the interview I, I agree people ask me what's my favorite episode and I, I always say the interview um, I mean you know how can you pick a favorite but um, you, I, I trust you know the story. They, the writers, wrote their brains out, and we would do 24 episodes, and we would they would write 24 scripts. And as Bert said recently, uh, you know this one will never make it. This is going to end up being awful. And then halfway through, he'd say, "Well, maybe it's got a chance." And then he got to the end, we got to the end of it, and he said, "God, we pushed, we pulled it off again." Um, but in this case, they had written their brains out and had come up with the, all 24. And then CBS called and they said they want a 25th episode. <laughs> right. And they said, oh, my God, how do we do this? And they looked and looked and looked and thought about it. And then they thought of the, the Edward R. Murrow, You Are There. Mm. And um, Gene, I remember Gene coming up to each one of us with um, a, a little uh, pad of paper and a recorder saying, I want you to um, extemporize. I want you to, to, to uh, ad lib a, uh, your answer in character to the questions on this list. And then we're going to have a, a, a reporter. It turned out to be Cleve Roberts, who was quite famous here right. in L.A., um, come in and do a kind of Edward R. Murrow-esque visit to the MASH during the war. And... Uh, and interview each of us, and he did. And we wrote the scripts, our own scripts, for the to answer the questions he posed. And then, of course, they threw into his script a couple of questions that weren't written mm. that we didn't know were coming. And we had to again, at, you know, at, at the at the moment as the cameras cameras are running, hear this new question and respond to it in in character. And and I thought afterward, what what wonderful people these are! Just what you know that they they had such faith in us, right? And such such willingness to to push out to push the edges uh, all the time. And it was God. It was just it was just thrilling. Where did you watch the finale? We got together um, at uh, at the Fox. Fox set up a, this big screening theater they have. Um, the day before, I guess, 
it aired. And um, we all came and brought our respective spice, (laughs) (laughs) husband, friends, wives, whatever, and the whole crew. It wasn't just the actors. It was the whole bunch. And, uh, And we watched it and wept and laughed and wept again and because uh, it was a, that was a boy that was a that was a tough one i remember bert saying as we were shooting a scene bert directed the last one and he said okay wait 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 he said god he said i've never been in a situation where i've had ask have actors ask actors to stop crying <laughs> <laughs> And am I right that the the wonderful message that BJ leaves for for Hawkeye that was your idea? No, I, I wish I, it was my idea. <laughs> um, the message that BJ left was Bert's idea. The set the setup was you know BJ can't say goodbye. He wasn't willing to say goodbye. <laughs> um, we'll see you. I'll see you. I swear I'll see you. But Bert had he, he said I remember in he said I remembered that in. I was in a camp when I was a kid and we had these stones and people would write notes to other people on them and take pictures of them. And he said, I thought this was the great way for BJ to say goodbye. And it was perfect. Uh, you know, I don't know how you come up with something better because mm. it, because it, you know, as the camera pulled out, they took the shot of it and it was our way to say goodbye and thank you to the audience um, and, you know, to the world for giving us the opportunity to do this show and to receive it and embrace it the way they had for so many years. You uh, you told uh, our friend Mark Freeman a wonderful story a few years back about uh, going back to shoot a different show and, and poking your head into Studio 9 and the memories oh, that man. that brought back. Oh, it was stunning. I uh, I actually wrote about it um, and just sent it to the the, the gang, as I think of them. Um, yeah, I, uh, I was doing a film for uh, for film, and and we were on stage ten. And I said I, I need to take some time. I'm going to walk over to stage nine. And I walked in, and it was like like I was going to work again. Mm. It was, it was, I, I, I could hear the voices. I could see the people. I, it was ghosts, people who passed on. Um, it almost smelled, you know, like it did. Uh, I, I, I was, I was so moved by the experience of just walking on the set that I had to sit down and write it out for, everybody who would understand what I was talking about. And, and they all did. And I guess I told that to Mark as well. You know, uh, obviously anytime you work together in an ensemble, uh, people form a, a bond, but, but this one seems a particularly strong one to have lasted for all these years. And, uh, you know, no matter yep. who we talk to from the cast, it, it's, it's a bit overused, but in this case, you certainly all seem like a family. Oh, there's, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a kind of cliche in the business to say, oh, yes, if we formed a family when we were there. But we did. Um, um, we loved each other and still do. We've um, 
into too many services and talked about people who are with us no longer. We've honored their memories, but we we do it as a unit, and, and it's because it, we still feel a part of that unit. And it's... Um, it's something that'll never leave me. I know, and and I. It's fairly. It's clear to me that it's the same with everybody else. From um, from from your perspective, Mike, why why are we still talking about it fifty years later? Why are people still watching, and why do new generations of fans find this show and embrace it? I think Gene Reynolds came up with what I consider to be the best answer to that question, and that is that it was the perfect existential situation. He said, everybody doesn't go to war. Every man doesn't put on a uniform. Um, Everybody doesn't um, suffer the same set of circumstances, but everybody understands having to be separated from the ones they love and having to do so for a reason That is a good reason, but a painful one. And he 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 probably put it better than I did, but just now. But um, but I think he was exactly right. People, you just said it. I get letters every day from people who talked about what Mash meant to them and how important it was to their lives. And it's it's a it's a uh, I, I have to say it's a little bit of a uh, I don't I'm struggling to find the word it's not a it's not a burden but it's a big responsibility mm. to be part of something that has had that kind of chemical chemical emotional reaction in the lives of so many people I think I did tell you this story. I was, uh, when I was doing the show, I was asked to come to Wisconsin, I think it was, uh, to do a telethon to raise some money for a charity. And I did. And then there was a, we were doing the thing during the day, and then there was a break. And the guy said, uh, you can go sit down or have a cup of, uh, uh, have a drink of water or whatever you want. And I said, I think I'll just go out and take a walk around a little bit. I can, I've got 15 or 20 minutes. And he said, sure. So I went down the street. Just walked in, uh, I think it was uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. And I'm just looking, you know, around and beautiful day and um, a guy's coming toward me. And as he gets close, I see that he recognizes me and he stopped and he said, hey, and I said, <laughs> yeah. And he stuck his hand out. He says, how the hell are you? (laughs) And I said, I grabbed his hand and shook it. I said, I'm fine. How the hell are you? And then he suddenly, I saw his eyes open wide and he leaped back. And he said, oh, my God, I just realized I don't know you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And I said, that's that's quite all right. You've just charmed the hell out of me. And thank you. (laughs) And he said. He said, how does it feel? And I said, what do you mean? He said, how does it feel to have half a relationship 
armed with millions and millions of people. And that's a question, uh, you know, uh, how do you answer that question? That's wonderful. Mike, thank you so much, as always. I uh, really appreciate that every time you make some time for us. Oh, I'm always happy to talk to you, Rich. And uh, I appreciate your um, your paying attention to this wonderful group of people. Absolutely. Give our best to Shelley as well. Thank you. I will. All right. Thank you, Mike. Be well. You take, take care. Mike Farrell talking MASH with us here on Downtown. Our thanks to Mike and the wonderful Leslie Ann Warren as well. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, brought to you as always by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time on Downtown. 